0: Unexplained Deaths and Mysteries with Deborah Davis.
2: Welcome back, everybody. And if I sound a little bit different to usual, it's because this week I'm suffering from the worst bout of hay fever. So we are here to discuss a second kind of take and look at our third episode, which we called The Cheshire Serial Killer. Now, today, though, it's not just going to be me and Ian talking about this. We actually have two guests with us, one of whom you've heard before, and that's Frankie. And we also have kind of, well, a special guy, really, because (laughs) he's, he's kind of got this... Oh, whole persona that kind of terrifies the life out of me. (laughs) He's an investigative journalist. So, you know, the word journalist is actually quite scary. (laughs) Um, But we have David Collins. He's written a book recently about the silver killer. And I'm going to pass you over to Ian now and he will tell you more about it.
3: Morning, Debbie and uh, David and Frankie and everyone listening. Great to be back again. I hope your hay fever improves. I guess your sharp tongue will remain throughout, (laughs) nonetheless. Um, But it's really, really interesting, Debbie, that you mentioned about you uh, you being frightened of the journalist tag. The first time we met at CrimeCon, I had a media badge on me, and I remember asking a senior police officer his thoughts on capital punishment. And he turned around and looked at my band. And he said, I'm not talking to you. And then when I explained my background, he whispered in my ears, hang them. So yes, <laughs> I know that labels can be very, uh, uh, intimidating sometimes, but listen, uh, let's get on with the show. Uh, Frankie, welcome back. I really enjoyed the David Kelly analysis. And I think that you bring a very special operational reflection to our discussion. So, uh, what have you been up to and how's things generally
1: uh, retirement suits let's put it that way i'm quite happy uh, in my little life in dorset and bimbling around in the sunshine by the sea and i have no intention of ever going back to policing again sounds
3: good and for listers out there uh, and i've written a story about it on my blog uh, frankie and i had a night out in pool we went to the speedway and we had a couple of gin and tonics so i can't remember much about it but it was a it was a fun evening wasn't it frankie Frivolities out of the way, uh, David, welcome. Um, really looking forward to today's podcast. Hello. You've had a bit of an
0: introduction from, uh, from Debbie there, so, so follow that one. I oh, know, I scare myself sometimes. I'm not scary. I try not to be. I guess my background is I'm an investigative reporter. Uh, I was hired by the Sunday Times uh, Insight team in 2015. So I worked for the, I was deputy editor of the Insight team. So that was the kind of the, the team set up by Harold Evans in, in the 60s to kind of investigate subjects of, of kind of public interest and do in-depth work. Past hits have been the um scandal, which you'll all know about. The Sunday Times campaigned a lot on that. Insight revealed that Israel had the bomb, <laughs> which is quite a, was a big scoop at the time um we got the first interview with kim philby the mi6 uh, defector um so it was a big thing to walk into um i'm now northern editor so i'm based in manchester but i still do work with insight i'm still an investigative reporter and this case is one that really kind of hooked me in from the very beginning you know the, the wilms o killings um uh it 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 came about because basically, as you'll know, I got sent a report, a confidential report, uh, which was a review done by the senior governor's officer for Cheshire Police, which looked at basically two suicides in Wilmso in 1996 and 1999, and the report that the author of the report, Stephanie Davis, also kind of took advice from independent forensic experts, former investigators like Frankie and that sort of mould. So she took a wide range of kind of opinion and expert advice as well as her own, you know, she's very highly qualified in her own right in terms of kind of, uh, you know, she's, she's got forensics qualifications, she's uh, she's made a lot of her role uh, as a coroner's officer made it more than what it is really so her review really intrigued me you know 179 pages of it and making these parallels between these these two murder suicides which I thought you know after taking advice and reading it I thought yeah you know I think she might have a point here and that's how I got into it really David, perhaps for, for our listeners and, and, and I guess
3: ourselves in the room, when a confidential report hits your email or, or your desk, what process do you go through? First of all, from a criminologist's point of view, my doubt sets in is the authenticity of, of these types of reports. For the benefit of the listeners and ourselves, could you just go through the process of receiving it, who you have to share it with, how you check the intelligence and then the sort of legal parameters. I think that would be quite fascinating before we get into the timeline of
0: the case. So, I mean, I guess when you get it in, you check your sourcing, you work out how credible the source is. There's always a kind of a risk assessment done by, you know, the reporting team where you look at, you know, have you used that source before? Do you know them? Where's it come from? What the chain it looks like. I mean, this is well established, but Stephanie was not the source. I can't obviously ever discuss who who that person was, but I mean, there there is a kind of uh. You, so you 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 take a whole you know rounded look at it. You read the information in it. You work out you know who the author was. Are they are they employed as is, is the person who they say they were uh, at R. And yeah, that's, pretty, I mean, um, and then you, you, I mean, to broaden out, it's always useful to speak to kind of experts in their field, especially on something like this. You know, I've, I've reported on crime for 18 years, probably, but I'm the, by no means an expert, <laughs> you know, in, in different areas, you know, but so you want to speak to people who are, so you begin a process of you know who do you want to speak to with a report like this? Well, you know a former SIO might help. Um, someone in forensics might help. The people mentioned in the report. So you kind of you 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 begin with that really. But it was quite an extraordinary thing to bring to you know my bosses at the Sunday Times. Obviously, you know I've got a report leaked. It's currently in the you know in the hands of the major incident team for Cheshire Police. It was authored from inside the the coroner's office for Cheshire, and it says that there's a serial killer that's been active since 1996 potentially in, in Cheshire and the northwest. Um, so obviously you know that hooks in the attention of the whole kind of machine of the Sunday Times, if you like.
3: And and what was the reaction from your colleagues then? I mean, I. I assume, you know, I've, I've got this vision in my head now with your colleagues spitting their tea out. What what happens next? I mean, is it, is it just a simple thumbs up, go for it, David? Or, you know, is, is there reservations in that type of uh, inquiry? Talk us through it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always, um, I mean, there's an immediate kind of, yes, let's look at it. I mean, I, so I, I, attach, I attach myself back to Insight because I realized the, the scale of it. You know the the report. It, it, you know the the cold cases were twenty years ago, but there's quite a lot of evidence to go back over to look at to check. Do we think this is credible? You know, because on a surface level, we could have just you know done a done a straight report. You know, we 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 have a leaked review. This is what it says. It's in the hands of the police. It was authored by the senior coroner's officer for Cheshire Police. And there we go. You know, you we just verbatim take the report and report it. And and the the onus for that report then goes on to you know, the authenticity really of of of, of that review, you know, that it was authored by her and it has it is in the possession of the police. So, you know, you could go for the straight report, but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do something more in-depth. So that's why I did it with Insight, the other Insight reporters. We started going, you know, to family, to friends, to witnesses, to anybody, basically, who might know something about about those cases to build up our own investigation, Merely,
3: Frankie, just bring you in here for a moment. Uh, David mentioned SIO, Senior Investigating Officer. From your police experiences, um, are there parallels in the way that David has gone about checking the credibility of his sources and how you would have done it in your policing days?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there is. I, I obviously think the responsibilities are slightly different on both sides. I think it's fair to say that, that I was never an SIO. Um, my bag was crime scene search and recovery of evidence. But of all the briefings I've been to, it, it, it always seemed to be that, that the... Information we had been received was checked thoroughly prior to any reaction, be it a search, be it an arrest, be it whatever. So, yeah, the the background checks had to be done to ensure, I suppose, a certain amount of authenticity to make sure it wasn't a hoax. Because, you know, every department, newspapers, police, whatever, loads of hoax. If we investigate every single one, we would be busy 24 7, even more so than the police are these days, but it would be non stop. So, there has to be the authenticity has to be uh, clarified uh, and it is before before we go out and do anything
3: david i'm very keen before you walk us through your own analysis of of the timeline and the and the deaths from a personal point of view what gripped you 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 must receive a lot of intelligence a lot of leaked reports and information what gripped you as an individual you thought you know what i Going to end up writing a book about it. I mean, it certainly gripped you. But what was the emotional grip?
0: Yeah. So what gripped me really was, I guess, you know, it was it was quite un, unusual. I think, you know, the idea that murder suicides were um were were being staged, um, but also, I guess, the fact that it was in Wilmslow really interested me. And I think the fact of the the type of families that we're talking about, that that's what really hooked me in, I guess. You know, we're talking about a very affluent area. You know, I think it is a real kind of aspirational place to live, Wilmslow. This is a place where if you make a bit of money in Manchester or the surrounding area, you'd like your kids to grow up in Wilmslow.
2: We don't have a lot of violent crimes going on here either, David. You know, it's it's just one of those kind of sleepy hollows, really
0: and i think that's right you know i'd spent i've spent a lot of time in in Wilmsville. i live i live not far away so you know it's it's that really and the idea that, that as i said the type of families that they were they were reasonably well off nice houses there was no background of domestic violence there was no financial issues or family issues so i guess that's what really interested me you know, you don't always have to have a motive. I mean, I know that. But I think the lack of one in both cases, it just added to the whole suspicions for me around it. Yeah, and it's really interesting. You you
3: talk about, Debbie, that, you know, nothing happens. It's a sleepy area. There, there is fascinating research that looks at the geographical locations in terms of crime. And generally speaking, uh, one would think that... Uh, you know, Wilmslow being an area of, of affluence, if there's going to be any crime there, it's going to be property crime. It's going to be those types of, you know, um, burglaries and robberies. But then again, even they are mitigated because people are going to have more sophisticated security. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really, you know, uh, acknowledge this oddity in terms of it was happening where it was happening. Uh, Frankie, I can see that you want to, to come in uh at this i was jump, just gonna too. ask
1: david out of interest that obviously when in, in the police when we have an investigation um an sio will take ownership and responsibility of a job who in your world takes ownership Would it be the editor Would it be you as the journalist Would it be the owners and does that change at any point if any
0: accusations are made in the public domain so it depends on the story it depends on kind of what team is built around the story really. So this this one, it would have been, I I brought the story in, but it would have been Jonathan Calvert, who is Insight editor, so he kind of was the kind of field marshal general, if you like, of, of the story. So he, he sits on top of Insight, and he basically, he's an extraordinary reporter. You know, he basically brought down Seb Blatter and at FIFA and He's been involved in some massive, huge stories, but he's got such a detailed brain. Um, he's got a real like mind for detail, which is like a real strength of his. Um, and so I was underneath Jonathan and alongside George Abufnaut, who he's on the Insight team. Again, he brings something different to it. He, he's a super kind of researcher, very meticulous
1: so so very much like the police investigation, there has to be someone who eventually will say yay yeah, or nay to whatever.
0: Yeah, it, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, you know, and I guess Jonathan would have had final say on this. But it's, it's a bit more, po- it's more informal than the police, you know. It's kind of like this, really, you know, this format, you know, it's the, it's the three of you in a room having a row and, and, and going out and discussing things, and it's all of that, isn't it? You know, it's not a kind of – although maybe it's like that amongst detectives, you know, um, to an extent. No, the briefings are usually quite structured and quite
1: calm and, there's, and, and quite informative, and each person has their own say. But the SO invariably will have the final say. So. Thanks, David and, and Frankie, for, for that
3: point. Just to summarize at this point, then, David, we, we've got the intelligence, it, it, it's credible. We're, we're, we're quite satisfied, it's credible. Uh, you mentioned the insight team, which are now presumably has been deployed to start making those on site inquiries and w- with the key people that you've mentioned. Can you perhaps, for, for ourselves and listeners, go through the timeline now and emphasize why you've believe the conclusion of the police was per- perhaps flawed in both of these
0: cases i mean it's in the book this actually and i think that's why the story is so intriguing there was debate within the in our team on what we all thought we were all convinced on the first the Ainsworths, and on the second one there was we didn't all agree the first one is the Ainsworths. That's Howard and, and B Ainsworth. That's 1996. There was a few things that I found quite compelling about that case that I didn't feel like the police investigation ever got to the bottom of. And there is a huge difference between those two investigations, the, the, the Ainsworths and the Wards, which was in 1999. The Ainsworths was really a very, quite a, a quicker, more speedy investigation. And there were things that I felt like they didn't get to the bottom of. The big one for me was the tablets beside the on the bedside cabinet. There were prescription tablets, pills. There, w- there was no record of how how Howard or B managed to get hold of them. There was there was no evidence or sign that they'd ever gone anywhere and bought them. So it's just it it was basically a mystery. You know, they did they didn't work that out. And what was doubly strange, I felt, was this idea that he'd done this method of, of putting a bag over his head, but the toxicology came back negative but for those tablets. I found that very odd because, you know, Howard would have known that the method of suicide is a combination of the two. That, that makes it easy easier. And in, and in some ways, some experts told us it makes it possible. So, some experts we spoke to said it is, it is really, really difficult, possibly, you know, even unlikely, that, that he managed to put a bag over his head and kill him and take his own life in that way. You know, at the crucial moment, what they tend to find, I think, is that you'd take the bag off. You know, it's just human instinct, No matter how much you want to take your own life, you will always at that point, you know, take it off, but we'll combine with the tablets, then, you know, that 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 is the method. So I think that was a real that was a big red flag for me. The other big one was the actual scene itself where basically Howard has no blood on him, practically. He's got a couple of spotlets on him. Which I know that you know, for 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 someone like Frankie, I guess. You know, I I personally, you know, I looked at that scene and I showed people that scene and they were, the first thing they ask is, did Howard change his clothes? And the answer we've always been told is no, he didn't. There's no sign of him changing his clothes. And there is a couple of really faint blood droplets on his top, a couple, but nothing like the level you'd expect. So those two things for me, really. For that first case.
3: Thanks, David. Let's pause you there. I know Deborah and Frankie are very keen to come in. D- Debbie?
2: Oh, I just wanted to say that normally um, tablets that are dispensed by a chemist will have the doctor's surgery name on them, won't they? Or or so. They usually do, don't they? So in the absence of that, I just wonder what what was on the the actual bottle of those, those tablets, because if they were just bought from the internet, maybe... Obviously, they would just have the label of, of what they were and not, not the details of the, the actual surgery that, you know, prescribed them. And usually on the bottle as well, it would have who they were prescribed to, wouldn't it, and the dosage?
1: It's exactly what I was going to say. You know, the, the, the pills not prescribed to either victim, who were they prescribed to and where did they come from? Never been answered as far as I could find. And the other thing, if I may, uh, on, on the plastic bag and, and the blood, I believe I I read there was some blood on the outside of the plastic bag, which would indicate that Howard had the bag on his head when he allegedly killed his wife. 79-year-old man with a bag on his head doing that to his wife. I I find that very difficult, very difficult. And I'm sort of with David that if anyone, regardless of their state of mind, would try and pull the bag off their head. That's human nature. Have you ever seen anyone with with a bag Take the, like, just with... Right. Yeah, a couple, yeah. And there are most, in fact, two or three, have had several thick plastic bags on their head or wrapped round their head so that they can't tear it off. Um, but all of them had attempted to. Um, so, yeah, the, the blood thing's quite interesting. I, I once had a, uh, a chap walk into Slough Police Station um, who had... Both thumbs hanging off, and horrendous gashes to his face where he'd been attacked with a knife. No blood. Not a, a minuscule amounts of blood. Shock. Shut him down.
3: And, and how did the, how did this person get these injuries, Frankie? He'd
1: been Wrong. attacked in the street. It was a robbery, uh, and he put his hands up to defend himself, and had almost had both his thumbs thumb severed, and they and his, he had one gash down the left hand side of his face, and one down his jaw into his neck. Uh, and I'm talking wide open gashes, but very little blood. I sense, Frankie, that, that you've got the same sort of
3: suspicions as, as David has. I, I could see it in your face as you was going through it and, you know, shaking of the head uh, from time to time. Um, even in chaotic murders, be they spontaneous or, or they be planned, there is an order in the chaos. But there does not appear to be that order one would
1: follow that this was a murder-suicide. So the, the first, the first anomaly I think, Ian, the first lack of order would would be the alleged. Well, the suicide note was left at the scene. It looks as though our lives have gone. So I have given her some sleeping tablets, and I will have to throttle her. Didn't do either of them. And that that so that's that's the first thing that's out of order.
3: But but what happens, Frankie, in a investigation into uh, deaths where clearly, as David has already pointed out two immediate red flags, and you, you've added other red flags, who on earth on the policing side says, hang on a minute, there's three or four red flags here.
1: So what, what would happen at a crime scene when I, when I was the police search advisor, if we had an anomaly like that, the suicide note, for example, or the pills or the couple of hammers that were found at the scene, the search would stop, completely stop, whilst that that anomaly was looked at and dealt with so that you don't disturb any other evidence in the scene. The anomalies have to be looked at and dealt with individually so you're not not ruining any other uh, evidence for the investigators later on. I I sort of listened to what David said earlier on about the Howard and B. Ainsworth job, that the police made a very quick decision it was a murder-suicide, and I think that shows in the level of search at the crime scene and the way that the evidence was dealt with.
3: Have you, from your experience without naming names, Frankie, though, come across SIOs who are so prescriptive in their hypotheses, you know, this is definitely a, a, a murder-suicide from, from the get-go, and what anything else comes into their view, they're just
1: blinkered? Only twice in, in the... I can't... I, I've, I've been police search advisor at many, many rape-murder crime scenes, and unfortunately, they don't listen. Because the problem with the police is, is the SIO, SIO is usually a high-ranking officer, uh, as a search advisor, we're usually low-ranking officers, uh, and they'll just say, "Yeah, we'll take that into on board and don't know anything about it." So, yet yeah, twice,
3: and there should be an audit trail in terms of anything an officer says is put in that audit trail. Again, from your experience, uh, is that a truthful recollection? Is everything written down, or, or do you think it's some selective editing?
1: I can I can only go from the search point of view. Uh, as a police search advisor, we do a detailed book from the moment we're called out to the moment we finish. That book contains uh, evidence recovered, not not massive detail, that's done by the service officer, but, you know, time entered scene, time left scene, who was there, who did what, why, where, and when, uh, why the search was stopped, why it was started again. Um, phone calls to the SIO or deputy SIO are all logged. And if I was to say to the SIO, uh, sir or mom, I think this, 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 and this, and they say no, that, that's not right, I would document it in my search advisor's log and ask them to sign it because I didn't agree with them or they didn't agree with me. So from a search point of view, yes, there was a detailed log.
3: Okay, I'm going to ask you a difficult question now, but I know that I can ask it and I know that you'll give it a a, a really good answer because you're that type of guy. But having looked at the open source material on the, the first murder, the Ainsworths in 1996, and the disclosures that David has given, what's your professional opinion on how those two people met their death?
1: I don't think it was a murder-suicide. I think somebody external or persons external have murdered both of them. That's just my opinion, based on what I've read about the crime scene. There are several anomalies in there um, that I don't think fit a murder-suicide. The bag on the head, for example. Why would he put a bag on his head before killing his wife? Why two hammers at the scene? And one was washed clean. Why would a guy that's battered his wife to death with a hammer with a bag on his head then walk to a sink to clean a hammer to go back and lie on the bed in an unnatural position? And also, would a 79-year-old man have the strength to put a bread knife into his wife's skull so hard that it embeds and stays there? I, I've, I've only seen that once in my whole career. And the guy that had the knife in his head was free from pain and completely lucid and conscious. But the force it took to get that knife into his head was amazing. I'm not sure a 79-year-old man, really, and to, against a woman he loved and lived with, would do that. And there's one other thing. The plastic bag, apparently, later on, and this may need to be qualified, I read somewhere, was taken from evidence to be retested, and it was handled so many times by police officers that all the evidence was compromised on it. So th- there again, there is basic police procedures that haven't been followed. I have to say, it, it, I think it's shameful it, I, and it, it, it's
3: bonkers uh, to have almost like no deliberation at all in terms of those red flags. Almost like. Well, like my guess is they've gone in murder, suicide,
1: that's it, shut it down.
2: I think, as well, something else to take into account is that the level of violence that was shown towards his wife, you know, with the knife embedded in her forehead, is a display of rage. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of background evidence of Howard having fits of rage. Certainly on that last day that he was seen by the neighbor, Margaret, she said that he appeared to be his normal usual self and he was polite and and everything else. And I just think that it's it's very odd that he would write a note saying he was gonna give her sleeping tablets, have to throttle her, and actually ends up embedding a knife in her forehead. I mean, it's horrific, isn't it? It just doesn't add up to me.
1: The, the scale, of, the difference in scale between those two is massive, isn't yeah,
2: it? Yeah, it is. It is. And you know something? My dad had prostate cancer that spread to his liver and his stomach. And my dad actually decided that he wasn't going to be around anymore. And I remember going to see him, him and my mum, one particular day. And I noticed he'd not taken his tablets and he said, no, I haven't taken them. And he didn't kind of say why, but I knew why, you know, my dad was ex-police and he was RAF. He was very military, slightly distant, you know, really. And, And he said to me, I've made an appointment for you at the bank next week on Tuesday. And I said, really, what for? And he said, well, you just need to go to that appointment. And it was kind of, we were having this strange conversation that both of us knew what that conversation was about and yet neither of us really said, you know, like my dad obviously was intending on on taking his own life in some way. And and he, he refused point blank to take the tablets that day. That night he had a catastrophic stroke and he was in a coma for a week and he died. Um, so I, I don't, that was his mindset, you know, Evidently, I'm not gonna take the tablets. I know what's gonna happen to me because he had a heart issue as well. And that's really what the tablets were for. He didn't suddenly change his mind at the 11th hour and start you know, plunging a knife into his chest or anything else. I just find it very strange and very odd that Howard Ainsworth would write that note saying that that's what he was gonna do and then do something so dreadfully different. It just seems odd.
1: And he actually says in the note that he has given her, have given her some sleeping ah, tablets. Right. And as David said, there, there was no, the note said, it looks as though our lives have gone. So have. have given her some sleeping tablets and I will have to throttle her. As David said, the
0: toxicology, there was nothing. I think that's what David said. Is that correct, David? You know, it's a really good point that, and actually <laughs> I've never actually thought about that, you know. Yeah, that is a really, really good point. That It's past yeah. tense, isn't it?
2: Oh, my God.
0: And you've just picked up on something that actually I've not um, considered, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, no, it's true. It's, it's, but, it's, but he's saying it past tense, isn't he, that he has,
3: he has done it. It strikes me that the primary outcome of murder-suicide is to extinguish life. It's not to create terror for those that discover the bodies. And the likelihood is that people that will find the bodies to begin with are friends and loved ones.
1: This is not consistent with a murder-suicide. In, in all my years in the police, I can only think of one job. We had an elderly chap walk into slab police. I don't know if you were there, Ian, uh, and, and he had hit, battered his wife to death with a hammer and he walked into the police station with the hammer. That's the only job I can ever think of where that happened to, to that degree of violence.
3: David, I think we're all agreed that the killing of the Ainsworths was not as a result of a murder-suicide.
1: The position of the bodies would also say that as well. I think the way that, that that Mr. Ainsworth was lying on his left arm, which is an unnatural way to lie, like he'd been moved. So, David, be, be, before we move on, because I think you said that you and your team were,
3: you know, joined up in the thinking um, on that one. Any more about the Ainsworth uh, murders? I'm going to call it murders now because that's my professional opinion that they were murdered. Before we
0: move on to the the other case, I think we've covered quite a fair bit of it. I mean, I, th- I think I think. A- I think just the level of violence like you said a lot of the kind of professionals we spoke to kind of ex police officers and so on um I think like 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 Frankie picked up on in in your in your first episode on this subject that level of violence is really unusual um it does happen but it is unusual so I think that 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 was that was a big red flag.
1: Murder suicides like this usually show rage, and these two don't appear to have any sort of rage or hatred throughout their whole life.
0: I mean, there was there was that kind of um, you know through the process of speaking to people who actually knew them. There's somebody I spoke to who was B's boss at the funeral parlour. Who who I spoke to at length, Robin Curry, and he gave a really good insight actually, in, as to how a, like a a friend viewed their relationship. And although, you know, with all these things, you can never take away the idea that someone could just snap behind closed doors. And that's what we always had in mind. It is always possible. You know, you can build up a picture of people, but then do you really know what's going on behind closed doors? It's that, it's that old adage, isn't it? So we've always got that in mind, but, it, but I just, I just found Howard and everybody did a really unlikely person to have carried out that level of violence you know, to, to to have the mentality to actually to stab somebody in the forehead you know, in that way, I just found it really difficult. I think, you know, if that's what would have happened, I think the crime scene would be more believable for me, you know, because it's more humane, isn't it, in a way? You know, if he wants to take B's life, why not just throttle her or smother her over a pillar or, you know, why, why batter on the head, you know, more than a dozen times, you know, a, you know, there's evidence that she was beaten. There's a ligature in the, in the room beside the bed as well. I think, I think overall it, it, it's a, a lazy sort of blockage where
3: someone would suggest you don't know what goes on behind closed doors because there is great evidence, and particularly from a uh, leading forensic criminologist, uh, Paul Britton, that will say there will be elements of a person's behaviour and he cites sexual killers. Uh, there will be evidence in their past life where they've had a- animal cruelty, for example. There will be evidence in the lives of people that murder of narcissism. So to say that somebody of hitherto, you know, wonderful, loving behaviour certainly snaps behind closed doors without any evidence in their past. No, that, that, is, that is ridiculous. I think had I
1: walked around that scene initially with a senior senior of crime officer, which is what I would have done as a search advisor, I'd have had
0: huge concerns. Mm-hmm. And and when you say that, Frankie, you know it, it it and and again, this is this is in the book. But Christine Hurst, who you know spoken to at length, who was the, the you know the coroner's officer that that hand, handled this for the coroner, you know she she immediately picked up on some of the things we've just mentioned. She was the one raising those red flags in nineteen ninety six. Some of the one things we've just covered, not all of them, but but some of them, and she had conversations with the scenes of crimes officers and they weren't happy with it. You know, the scenes of crimes officer for that, that scene was not happy with some of the, some of the, the, the things we've just been talking about. And the big one he wasn't happy with was the blood basically all over the bedroom everywhere and not on his clothes, not in his hands. He'd, he'd looked personally for clothes, bloodstained clothes, in the bins in the you know surrounding area in the you know he could there was no evidence that that howard ever changed out of out of his clothes so so definitely the scenes of crime's officer was not happy
1: that does indicate that someone higher up then has, has said
0: no this is a murder suicide and pulled the plug on it and also there was a, there was the idea that um that basically they, they cleaned up the scene before the post-mortems took place, which Christine Hurst was, was really shocked by and still is, that they'd actually basically scrubbed the bedroom completely clean before they'd, wow. eat, they'd done the actual post-mortem, the pathology on the bodies, which, as you know, is a big way to glean clues, glean evidence, you know, of how a person died. And then feedback into the into the investigation, so there there was that as well. So that that feeds into the kind of idea of the you know there was a really kind of quite relatively quick decision made.
3: Can I ask you, David? It, it comes into my head now, and, and I'm reluctant to use the word. It's either flawed policing or a conspiracy in terms of pressure being put on the police to you know wrap this up really quickly. I mean. What are your thoughts on either of those two outcomes?
0: I've never come across any suggestion of conspiracy in terms of kind of, certainly not at the time. From what I know of the detectives, or some of the detectives, they were pretty decent, experienced people. So it is a strange one. But at the same, I can see in some ways why they did think it was a murder-suicide initially. It's just when you probe in further, that I think it does raise so many suspicions. You know, they had a note. I think there was, you know, Howard did have a belief in euthanasia. That is that is worth mentioning. Um, you know, but, and I think those two things really did steer the investigation from an early point. But it's just when you start to dig a little bit deeper into... Well, for a start, what is euthanasia? Euthanasia is death with dignity. It's about having a choice. You know, there was no choice in the way B died. It was not dignified the way she died. You know, the way her bodies, their bodies, was discovered was was not a nice experience for for the officers that found them. Spoke to one of the officers who, you know, it's just something you'd never forget. Basically, you just don't. I think it was a. a a case of probably well-intentioned tunnel vision. That's my opinion. Pressures
1: of time, pressures of money.
0: Yeah, I think that there was a valid hypothesis of a
3: murder-suicide to begin with, yeah? And I, I totally get that. But but clearly the red flags, in, in, in my professional opinion, created an alternative narrative that was never looked into until, you know, you and others started to look into it
2: wow blimey guys we've been talking for ages you just kind of forget the time don't you anyway i think what we need to do is wrap this up for now and then we will be right back with you next week for our second part of this really interesting case so take care for now see you soon guys